0: What I'd like to have right now is for all you fat, out of shape, podcast listening piss ants, keep the noise down while I take my robe off and show whoa, the ladies. Whoa, what
1: whoa, we- whoa, 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 Seth,
0: Seth. Yeah. This what?
1: is radio. This is yeah. internet radio, and that's a visual gag for TV. And I-, I love you, but you need to take a look in the mirror. You don't have Rick
0: Rude's body. I'm just saying. I don't well. either, but Well, okay, I guess I'll just hit the music then. Okay. Welcome once again, ladies and gentlemen, to another edition of Classic Wrestling Memories. And in case you couldn't tell from that that, uh, awkward intro that we did... This episode is dedicated to the life and career of the one and only WWE Hall of Famer, Ravishing Rick Rude. And just absolutely one of the greatest heels of all time and definitely deserving in his place in the WWE Hall of Fame. And fortunately, I don't have to pay tribute alone. As you heard earlier, I am joined by the one and only Crazy Train, Jonathan Bullock. Train, how you doing? And uh, any any thoughts about Rick Rude you wanted to share?
1: All aboard, ladies and gentlemen. Um, Now that we've brought Seth back down to reality. uh, (laughs) uh, No, I, I, you know, we we last the last been a while since we've we've done one of these. And the last one we did, we kind of focused on, you you know, the card that turned you into a wrestling fan with uh, Great American Bash 92, I believe it was. Um, Mm -hmm. So as we were pondering things, and we've got a lot of ideas, we talk about them all the time. I, I kind of want to give you a, a nod of the cap because we've done a lot of Crockett stuff, which is of course my birth into the, in the world as a wrestling fan. So when we were talking about, well, let's do um let's do maybe just an, an individual talent and to a retrospective, I just pulled Rick Rude out and suggested it to you cause I knew he was one of your favorites. Not that I didn't. I mean, I liked him. It just, I know
0: you're a bigger fan of his than even I am. So, um, right, right. If, if I, if I recall the conversation, uh, I, I brought up Rick Flair and you were like, well, Everybody does a show about Ric Flair. And, and then you say, what, what about, about Rick Ric Flair? Rude? <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: So, yeah. I, I and, and, you know, like you said uh, at the start of this, worthy of a Hall of Fame. So definitely worthy of us having, a you know, an hour or so chat about him here on Classic Classic
0: Memories. So, yeah, we're talking Rick Rood here. Now, his first big break, if I recall correctly, would have been 84, 85 in, in world class. Does that, does that sound correct?
1: Uh, actually, I think he got his start. Uh, my understanding, he was one of those Robbinsdale, Minnesota guys, wasn't he? Uh, I mean, he was Kurt Ang or sorry, Kurt Angle. <laughs> the, he was <laughs> Kurt, Kurt Henning's Henning. best friend growing up, wasn't he?
0: Yeah, yeah, it was. It was him. Uh, Hennig, I want to say Tom Zank, and there, there might be one other name in there. That that, that they're all almost exactly the same age and uh, the same school. Brady, a little bit.
1: Brady, Brady Boone, Brady Boone. Yep, that was the yes. other one. one. But they all went to Robbinsdale High School, which like, Robbinsdale is a, a fairly affluent uh suburb of, of Minneapolis, I believe. Makes sense because Kurt's dad was obviously a, a major star at the time in the AWA, so he would live in that area. And they aren't the only ones. I mean Minneapolis had a run there from well, early 70s to early 80s where they were just cranking out what became huge stars. Besides the guys we named, I mean Barry Darso… Uh, Scott Simpson, aka Nikita Koloff, um, the Road Warriors, Ric Flair, Ricky Steamboat, uh, uh, Jim Brunzel, or is it Brian Blair? I can't ever remember which one of the Killer Bees was from that area.
0: Oh, just ask Sheki; he'll tell you.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and of course, and then of course Sheiky wasn't from there, but he trained with those guys coming over from Iran. So I mean, they, they were cr- Greg Ganya. they were just cranking out guys that were stars for about ten years there. But the the, the core guys we're talking about. They all were buddies in high school Brady Boone, Kurt, you know, uh, Rick Rude.
0: Um, So,
1: kind of impressive when you think about the the amount of. I mean, that was a Hall of Fame list I just named right there, wasn't it?
0: (laughs) Mm -hmm. I think, other than uh, Zank, I mean, because Kurt Henning's in the W Hall of Fame, if I recall correctly.
1: Yes, yes, yes. Wade Boggs inducted him, remember? Oh, yeah or his wife. He was he was he, like, like rude. We had lost him at that point and he was inducted posthumously. Yeah. But I mean yeah, but Brady Boone and Kirk and, and Tom Zinger about the only ones that aren't in the, that in the Hall of Fame of all the guys I just listed, I think. Right. And it wasn't that both those guys were stars. Don't make no bones about it. They both were stars. They just weren't stars of the levels of a Steamboat or a Rude or a Henning. That's all. I think Rick probably grew up much like I did. You grew up in the Carolinas at the time that I did. You were a wrestling fan if you were a young boy. I think if you grew up in Minneapolis, the time Rick grew up, you had to kind of be a wrestling fan, you know, even if you weren't a fan like you and I are, it was on your radar. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, AWA was, I mean, that was big, big part of the community. And I think of the, the, the pop culture of that, that, ta- that city at that time. And then of course your, your best friend's dad is like one of the top stars in the company. Um, I don't know much. Did your research tell you anything about his amateur background? All I know is is the arm wrestling. Did, was did he play sports in high school? I mean, because he obviously was a great athlete. You could not just his build, the way he moved.
0: Yes, and and an educated man, if uh, if I recall correctly, I think he had a yes, degree yes. in uh, physical education.
1: Right. So obviously he he was athletic from the from early. You don't get a PE degree unless you're an athlete. Let's be honest. <laughs>
2: mm-hmm.
1: But um, I know it was, it's, you know, it's well documented and, and known by all the fans. He was a, was he a professional arm wrestler or an amateur arm wrestling champion
0: before he trained and got into wrestling? According to kayfabememories.com, dot com, he was a national arm wrestling champion. So mm-hmm. that that that's about as professional as you can get.
1: Yeah, I, I would think so. And of course, I think that arm wrestling, like any other sport of that nature, had weight limits. So it, well, I mean, obviously, it was in his particular weight class. Um, right. But you could look at him and tell right. that he, I mean, he, he wasn't arm wrestling Scott Norton, right? Right, no. But Scott Norton was also. he's another one of those Minneapolis guys we forgot to mention. <laughs> there's another one. <laughs> so they breed arm wrestlers and pro wrestlers up there, I guess. The, <laughs> mm-hmm. Unless you're talking about Steamboat, then it's baseball players, but I digress. <laughs> <laughs> I said, but he trained with Vern, correct?
0: Uh, I, my research shows uh, Eddie, Eddie Sharkey.
1: That was my other guess. It was if you were in that area, it was one of the two: either Vern trained you or Eddie Sharkey at the Monster Factory. So, you know, that was the, the, about your two options in that region of the country at that time.
0: Um, but he broke in it, uh, it, it, around eighty two, eighty three, I want to say. Mm-hmm. Does, that, does that sound That's, right? That,
1: that sounds about right. And I think he was originally like a like a, just a white meat baby face. Yeah, and his name really was Richard Rude, R O O D. You know. Um, and he was quite dissatisfied, my understanding, with the push and with, you know, just he kind of was a natural born heel, I think, um, just his personality. Right. And right. He, he, I don't know. He,
0: it's, it's not that he's a bad looking guy, but as I've said before, he has a very punchable face.
1: Right. Uh, and, of course, he was clean shaven at the time. I, I don't know if it was in the tail end of his run there in Minneapolis, which was his first territory, or if it was later on. And my first mem- my first memories of Rick Rude were uh, when he went to Florida for the Grams and for Championship Wrestling from Florida. But that's where he became a heel, grew the mustache, and and changed the spelling of his last name to Rude. Um, Vern probably was. I would I would guess, and I'm completely speculating here, listeners. Vern was probably the one who told him, well, if you're going to be heel, just change the spelling of your name. You've already got a good name. Much like the way he did with Ric Flair. I mean, right. Richard right. Flyer became Ric Flair, and it worked.
0: I, I just remember hearing the story of uh, Ricky Steamboat. You know, where, you know, Ricky Steamboat's real name is Richard Blood. And mm-hmm. how do you have a baby face with the last name of Blood? But right. you can sure as heck have a, a heel with the last name of Rude.
1: <laughs> Exa- exactly, exactly. And so, you know... If it i mean he already had a cool sound name just spelled it just changed the spelling, so like like I said, my memories, earliest memories of of Rick were around the around eighty four eighty five um Crockett had not taken over the Florida territory yet, but he had a working deal with the Grams and there was a lot of talent exchanges and around the same time that Crockett was you know building the Starcade brand, Graham was building a brand called Battle of the Belts down in Florida, and there were because there was Crockett talent on these cards and, uh, they had this work in a range and they, you know, they would have Florida guys on the Starcade cards. Several of the markets here in the mid-Atlantic territory, the Charlotte territory got Battle of the Belts, um, on their t- television because not these, the Battle of the Belts were not, uh, close circuit. They were similar to a Clash of the Champions where they were like, you know, it was a special that night on regular broadcast television. Yeah,
0: it, it, it was syndication. It would be the equivalent right. of uh, around these parts, like what, what would become CW, you know.
1: Right, exactly. And, and I remember watching the first Battle of the Belts, uh, which was from Tampa. And I, I want to say it was like on a Thursday night or maybe it was a Saturday night. And I had my little 13-inch color TV in my, t- in my, in my room um and watching you, you it had, and, uh, you
0: had to turn the dial right to,
2: to, to, yep, change had to the turn the
1: dial and, and, and it was one of the U, it was one of the uhf stations so i really had to play with my rabbit ears to get a, a decent <laughs> picture because <laughs> if i remember it wasn't the greenville or Asheville station i actually was picking up uh the, the the charlotte station it was you know so it was actually out of my out of my normal area but if i moved that ab- rabbit ears right i could get charlotte stations and uh a young Rick Rude was one of the undercards, uh, undercard matches, uh, wrestling. Oh, who did he
0: wrestle that w- night? Would it be, uh, uh Billy Jack Haynes?
1: Billy Jack Haynes, who was a Crockett guy for the Southern title, which was, you know, the uh, secondary title. Also went on to work title. for Vince, too. Yeah. Uh, but, but was the secondary title in the Florida territory after the Florida Heavyweight Championship. Um, and did not know who he was, uh, but I could tell he was a good athlete, had a good look. Um, was not smart to the business, obvious at this point. Um, but as a young fan, I'm like, well, this guy's got a great physique. He didn't have the full on mullet he would have later for Vince McMahon, but he had, was beginning to get it. He, he already had the Tom Selleck seventies porn star stash, which I think is very important to the, to the whole Rick Rude character. I think that was kind of the, the cherry on top of the
0: Sunday for me, at least. Yeah. He, he looked weird. Clean shaven. You, you just, yes, he had he to have that stash on him. <laughs>
1: Yeah, and but he had he had a great look and he did a little bit of talking in a pre-match promo, but another interesting trivia note, he was being managed at the time by Percy Pringle, and for newer fans, that is he would of course become Paul Bear years later. Um but Percy Pringle was his uh, long-running gimmick for years as a manager.
0: Uh if you and, can imagine Paul Bear bleach blonde with a blonde mustache. That was Percy yes. Pringle.
1: <laughs> yes. And, and kind of did almost a Jim Cornette kind of manager gimmick, like a spoiled rich guy. Right. That had a completely terrible sense of color coordination and fashion. <laughs> that was right. essentially Percy Pringle. Percy Pringle the third. Let's get it right. You know, you have to get it right. <laughs> and uh but that was the package and it worked. I mean, never struck me as a main event gimmick when I first saw it in eighty four, eighty five, but I could you could see there was something there. He didn't have the airbrush tights yet. He was wearing, you know, these completely eighties like neon blue leopard print tights. But you could tell by the way he moved in the ring, uh, his physique—there was something there, you know. Um, and one of the I, things
0: I can say, uh, just just as a fan, and you can comment on this as as a worker. When's the last time you ever heard of Rick Root hurting anybody? It seemed like he was very safe to work with.
1: Sure, sure, and he worked a. He worked a low-impact style, which, you know, helped. And uh, even, in the, even, you know, uh, even later in his career, Rick was never a guy to take huge bumps. But he, as a worker, I would say he made his bumps count, if that makes any sense.
0: Um, right. It, it puts him in the, uh, the, the Ted DiBiase category.
1: Yes. That's a good, that's a good analogy. Um, at the end of matches, even this early in his career, all the way through to when his in-ring career was over – you know, early due to an injury, which we'll get to later. Um, he would take that really high backdrop or the slam off the top or the superplex, some big bump towards the end of the match. When you as a as a worker, you know you have to kick it into overdrive because you're you've got to get the crowd to that fever pitch before you take it home.
0: You know, yeah, yeah. he he took that backdrop where he somehow managed to hover in midair, like mm-hmm. look down, like he was scared out of his mind. And and then do the flip and land on his back,
1: <laughs> and and this might totally be the Mandela effect on my on my part, but I think he took the backdrop in this match. I'm speaking of the first time I saw him. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but but regardless, that was one of his big bumps. You know, like I said, very efficient. Didn't do a lot of bumps. I mean, he wasn't like I mean, Flair every five seconds, Rick Flair's taking a bump. You know, <laughs> that wasn't Rick's style. You know, Rude would take, but he would take one or two, and they meant something. Um. For all the young guys out there, there's something to be learned from that.
0: I'm just saying. So from uh, world-class
1: – Not world-class, I, championship wrestling for Florida.
0: Yeah. Then he moved to world-class. Th- then, then he went to world-class, and he held their world title, uh, or th- mm-hmm. their equivalent of their world title, if I recall correctly.
1: Yeah, um, at, th- at that point, Fritz had kind of broke, Fritz had broken away from the NWA, and he essentially, because of the saturation of his television, he was, he was exporting his syndicated show to like Israel – and other parts of the country, I think he had designs to do the same thing Jim Crockett Jr. was doing, and try to compete with Vince and and, and expand nationally. Um, probably had quite frankly, and I, and this is hard for me to say as a as a as a guy who was you know weaned on Crockett product, he had as good or better television production values as Crockett did, and was probably could compete with Vince better that way, and had a much more solid metropolitan base in dallas than they had in charlotte to, to to compete but he didn't have the roster that that crockett had uh at that time and it's exacerbated by the fact that you're you, this was the beginning of the young bright stars on that territory dying prematurely like his own son david like gino hernandez um and rick Rude at that point had always been perceived even by people like me who were tape traders as a solid mid-card secondary belt guy. That's what he had been in Florida, you know? Right. So to uh, automatically just put your world title on him. Well, think about who the other world champions were at the time. Ric Flair was the NWA champ and Hulk Hogan was the world, was the WWF champ. And and I think it was probably Bachwinkle was still the AWA
0: champ at the time would, would put it about right. Cause we're, we're still talking what? 85, 86, 80.
1: Yeah. So no offense to Rick Rude, but a guy who's been in the business, what, four or five years against those those three guys? Does he ma- measure up? I mean, I know you're a huge Rick Rude fan, but I'm asking you as a as an honest wrestling fan. You can see my point, why it might have been a failed experiment.
0: Right, absolutely. No argument.
1: He had the look. He had the promo skills. He had the in-ring skills. He just didn't have the seasoning those other guys had and the the years and years of exposure. You know, I mean, Nick had been a star for what at that point, 20 years? A top yeah. guy?
0: Yeah, he would have Flair, and, of, and, and Nick would have been what? 50 about that time.
1: Rick was a a two or three-time world champ at that point, probably three, probably won and lost the belt to Kerry at that point or lost and then won back the belt from Kerry at that point. So that would have been his third reign. Had been on top for what 7-8 years at that point. Hogan had been on this monster run for 5 years, four or five years. He just didn't have the exposure and and it was it was just a failed experiment. Like I said, you combine that with the fact that the, the world class, though they had some advantages over Crockett to compete with Vince, they just didn't. They, they missed it in some of the key areas, and one of the biggest was talent pool. I mean, David was dead. Gino was dead. Ted DiBiase had left and gone to, to, to uh, Bill Watts. Um, I think the Freebirds had, had, might have have broken up at that point. I mean, they just didn't. They had Black Bart. They had Wild Bill Irwin. Two great veterans, journeymen who I have a lot of respect for, but not the same as you know Tito Santana and 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 uh, the the Hart Foundation, and the Bulldogs. That's the, that's the undercard for Vince. Or you know um, Nikita and Magnum and and the Rock and Roll of Midnight. That's the undercard for the Crockett's. This is not the same, is it? <laughs> it's, no. so, so Rick was in an in un, an, an, an unenviable position, I think, at that point. Uh, just my opinion. You got any thoughts on that when I kind of broke it, when I break it down like that?
0: Certainly no arguments. I mean, you know, this is definitely before I had uh, gotten familiar with the career. Obviously when, when we talk, uh. His, uh WWE and WCW run, uh, mm-hmm. I can keep up with that. But, but yeah, I mean, I guess the best analogy I could probably make, and it's probably not the best analogy, but I want to say Chris Jericho. Now granted, you know, you know, Jericho was, was world champion and we'll, probably be a wwe hall of famer one day but oh sure you know there there, there was that time when, Jer- when jericho was just he was at that ic level you you didn't truly buy him as a main eventer and i say this well, as one of the biggest jericho fans on the on the planet
1: i'll give you i'll give you two examples that, of, of guys one we haven't named and one we have already kurt and brett yes they part of that was due to the fact that hogan and warrior and savage were the top top guys right so they were kind of stuck in that intercontinental feud and and we we as fans were all the better for that cuz we got that great feud that the two of them had but it was a real risk when Vince put the belt on Brett because Brett was Brett was was a, was an heck it was a, it was a big risk for Vince to move Brett from a tag team guy to just the intercontinental title picture if you think about it
2: because mm-hmm.
1: cuz he'd been established as a tag team guy um and that's the history of wrestling the history of wrestling is is littered with mid-card guys working their way up and tag team guys and then a promoter and a booker taking a chance on him saying can i move him to that that top spot can i move him to a a world title level and if i do will the fans accept but i think it was a it was a foreshadowing of what was to come for rick Rude. um world i think it was a failed experiment but probably he probably grew from the experience uh both as probably as a performer and as Uh, just understanding how how the business worked. Because the next time he popped up on the radar was a very important part of my fandom as a wrestler because he came back to the NWA and to the Carolinas uh, and was put with Manny Fernandez, who was established as a a top upper mid-card babyface for most of his run here, turned Manny heel and put the NWA World Tag Team
0: titles on him and put
1: them with paul jones
0: um you're, you're are you familiar guy, any uh, with that they they were called the awesome twosome right
1: mm-hmm. are you familiar at all with that run for rick
0: i i don't have any firsthand knowledge of it but i remember back in the a1 dash wrestling days when i would do the uh a1 tag cup they were in it and i remember people uh i had a picture of it was rude like laying a laying a, a, across the desk that that tony Schiavone would would broadcast on and
1: oh yeah man yeah. he had he was his back. Real, he was really beginning to de- de- develop for that 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 swarmy playboy heel by that right
0: point. right that, and,
1: that uh, i think that that run was really it started in world class because that's when he started wearing the robes and more of the, the customized tights it really came to bear during this run with crockett and tagging right. with manny
0: right but but to finish the the story was uh um there there was feedback on on the picture that I would use is like hey I don't know who these guys are but that guy looks like Rick Rude and I'm like oh, that's because it is Rick Rude <laughs> right
1: and, and by the point that he got back here when well, he got back here to the Carolinas he had grown the full mullet that he would be known for in the WWF he he completely had the, he had, had, had it stash for years. And it was kind of a paradigm change for the Crockett's itself because this all came about because of the sudden departure of Tully Blanchard and Arn Anderson to New York. They had been the tag champs as part of the Horsemen. And there's that famous, you know, they weren't happy with their pay. Uh, I've heard this story a couple of times from Tully firsthand. <laughs>
0: <That> <laughs> um, son of a bitch, Tully Blanchard. Uh.
1: <laughs> If you ever want to know how Tully Blanchard feels, just ask him. He'll tell you. I can, I can, I can vouch for that. Uh, <laughs> man is not afraid, and by his own admission, he wasn't the most politically savvy wrestler ever in the business, and it hurt him at times. <laughs> I think with the older age and and being a father has kind of taught him some of that. But even to this day, he's still the little short, cocky guy you remember from the eighties. <laughs> no bones about it. But anyway, you know they had left suddenly. They had dropped the tag belts to the Midnight Express quickly uh, at at a rush house show in Philly. Um, And that essentially left Crockett in a bad spot because if you look at the dynamics of that company at that time, you had two top babyface teams in the Rock and Rolls and the Road Warriors. And you had two top heel teams. You had Arnon Tully and the Midnights. Well, one of the top heel teams go, you've got to fill the void somehow.
0: There's an imbalance, yeah.
1: There is an imbalance, and there's no other tag teams on the roster that really f- – that people – once again, going back to that, what do the fans perceive these guys as? You know, uh, you had had the Russians at one point a few years earlier, but Nikita has turned babyface. Barry Darso had left and gone uh, – You know, Kusher Khrushchev had gone and left and gone to the WWF to be part of demolition. <laughs> they tried to bring in a guy and put a hood on him and call him the Russian assassin and put him with Ivan Cole off, but it just didn't work. You know, Ivan was still perceived by fans in this area at that level, but not his partner. He didn't have the same impact that Barry Darso and Nikita Koloff had. had. Um, the Kansas Jayhawks were in the territory at the time, which was Hangman Bobby Jaggers and Dirty Dutch Mantell, but they were baby faces, and I think they could have turned them heel, but I don't know if we would have accepted them as top flight heels at that. But they were asconced as a mid card act, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so when Dusty brought them in, and Dusty was always a fan of Manny Fernandez. Um always. He was one of the he was one of Dusty's guys, you know. Um full caveat, Manny Fernandez as great an in-ring talent as he was in his heyday, was probably the most disappointing guy that I met once I got in the business for somebody that I I looked up to as a fan. Was not impressed. Um not a very happy individual and uh, I, I mean, Manny can have all the heat he wants with me. I'm going to speak my mind since he likes to speak his mind. Go watch any of his shoot interviews, and you can even the most uneducated fan can see he's so full of crap; it's not even funny, you know. Um, but it doesn't change the fact he did help train a lot of guys, and he was an immensely t- talented guy in the ring. I'm talking about him as a man, not as a worker. I think you understand. Um, yes, but it was a big risk because because Rick was kind of an unknown. And putting him with Paul Jones was weird, too, because Paul Jones was ensconced as a mid-card manager. I mean, your, your, your main event managers at that point for Crockett were J.J. with the Horseman and Paul Ellering with the Road Warriors. So putting him in that place, you're, you're, you're elevating. There was a time right before Magnum TA got big, and then, of course, that spot was filled by Nikita after the car wreck. Manny was essentially like the number two babyface in the territory after Dusty. But that had been years earlier. Manny had kind of moved down to like the three or four spot. It was him and Ronnie Garvin and 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 Boogie Woogie Man were kind of the the number three baby face, if that makes any sense, you know. Because Dusty was number one, and it was Magnum, and then Magnum got hurt, and then it was Nikita, you know, uh, and then Barry came in, and Barry kind of had that spot before he joined the Horseman. So it's a big risk. You're you're bringing in an an, an unknown commodity. And you're putting him with – in Rick Rude, putting him with the guy who was essentially a mid-card babyface with Manny Fernandez and taking a mid-card manager who also, by the way, was known for essentially managing freaks. You know how Lou Albano always managed the tag teams for Vince? Well, mm-hmm. That was essentially – that was kind of the thing if you think about it. Managers back in the day, they were known for managing one particular style of wrestler unless you were Bobby Heenan. That, that's because Bobby Heenan is the greatest manager of all time. Uh, Jim Cornette's—he's—he's a, he's a tag team manager, you know. He's Midnight Express, Heavenly Bodies, whatever, right? Right. Um, that's just the way managers were. So his manager, guys he had managed at that point were like the Barbarian, T.O. Kahn Baron Von Raschke, uh, a, a recently turned heel, Pez Watley, who shaved his head and became—well, got his head shaved by Jimmy Valiant and became Shaska Watley. Uh, so these were like mid-card freak characters, you no know, character heels. So to put him with two guys who were quote-unquote wrestlers one who's an unknown, one who's a mid-card guy, and he's a mid-card manager, and to immediately elevate them to the semi-main, main main event level as the World Tag Team Champions, that was a big risk for Dusty, if you think about it. And believe me, they delivered. We as fans totally bought them as a threat to the Rock and Roll Express. We even bought them as a threat to the Road Warriors, who were the top two babyface teams in the territory. And uh, it's a testament to the talent of that team, that they could have great matches with both the rock and rolls and the, and the road warriors. When you think about the very different styles as a heel team, you have to do working, you know, Tuesday night you're working Ricky and Robert and you're working one completely different style of match. And then the next like, well, Wednesday night, you're working the road warriors. Think about that. I mean, you're, right. you're, you're, you're just the fan. You get my point, don't you?
0: Right. And, and uh, we can carry that into his WWF run because.
1: Well, I was, let me add, let me add something else for you go. Mm-hmm. As much as Manny, and remember, Manny was the established guy in this territory. I can say personally as a fan, Rick Rude is really what made that team work. Because Paul and Manny were, were established guys in this territory. Now, Manny had gone away for a little while. Rick Rude was something new and fresh. And he had this cool move they used their finisher he called the Rude Awakening. Now, it was not the Rude Awakening that we would come to know later. It was a DDT. But this was also the same time that Jake was establishing that move in the WWF, so it it didn't really have the aura. And I just remember how devastating it looked, and how Rick, with that great physique and that promo skill that he had, and the cool robes, you totally thought they were. I mean, he he what made that team, and and he was not the known commodity in this territory. I guess is what I'm trying to say. And then the cherry on top of all of that, it fit Rick singly as a as a wrestler but it also fit the team. Do you happen to know what their entrance music was?
2: Uh, the,
0: uh it was Queen, wasn't it? No.
1: Well, yeah, they when they won the titles, they came out to they came out to to We Will Rock You, we are the champions. Okay. But before they won the title, well, after when they were would have the titles, they came out to Smooth Operator by Sade. Oh, okay. That totally fits Rick Rude, doesn't it? Yeah.
0: <laughs> but uh getting back it, to uh transitioning to uh, his his WWE run. I mean, it was a fall of 87 when he jumped ship to Vince. And that initial Survivor Series main event, he was on Bobby Heenan's team with, with uh, I want to say it was Andre, Haku, uh, a couple others opposite uh, Hogan and uh, Bam Bam Bigelow and, and, a, and a couple others. So literally his oh, first yeah. program in WWE is opposite Hogan. Think about right. that for a second.
1: I mean... That right there should have told us from the jump how serious Vince was about pushing this guy. I mean, first off, you stole one half of the competition's tag team champion, essentially. uh, And you immediately are programming him into uh, matches with the Intercontinental and the world champion. And you're giving him Bobby Heenan as his manager. The same guy that just turned Andre the Giant heel. Think about that. Mm -hmm. That's like the automatic stamp of approval, isn't it?
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So he had the... uh he was with Bobby i think his entire wwe run um he mm-hmm. had a uh i think he was in the wwf title uh tournament at wrestlemania 4 if i recall correctly that was when about about the time he was uh, that was the with one in,
1: uh, in that was the one in atlantic city at, at trump right
0: yeah yeah it was, it was one of the two at uh, at trump plaza um and uh but yeah he had that run with jake Um, and then he, I think the following year he beat warrior for the IC title and literally like the first man to pin ultimate warrior on WWF TV. I mean, these are some serious, uh, uh, accolades that we're talking about here. I mean, when you consider how protected warrior was now, correct me if I'm wrong,
1: but, um, he was not that happy with, um, being put with Bobby Brain in. That's my understanding. What does your research tell you?
0: Yeah, if I recall correctly, uh, I've heard stories that Bobby uh, said that Rick didn't like him because he thought Bobby was, was stealing his heat or some of the, that effect. And Bobby's side of it was, well, the more heat I get, the more heat you get. You know, we're on the same side here.
1: Well, well, I think that that probably, and this will become a recurring theme as we talk the rest of, of Rick Rude's career and life. From my understanding, now, I only met the man one time. It was in a locker room. It was one of those I was brought in to be enhancement talent. I went to the locker room respectfully, shaking everybody's hand, introduced myself, told him it was an honor to be in a locker room with him. He was very cordial to me and said, nice to meet you, too, kid. Good luck tonight. And that was it. You know, so he was completely nice and professional to me, but it was very brief. But I've heard many stories from his from his peers. He was a paranoid individual. And I think we might see beginning see the beginning of this with with what we're talking about with Bobby Heenan and him being put together.
2: Mm hmm.
0: And I, I thought they worked very well together, at least on screen. I thought so, too. But,
1: you know, I mean, so did Rocky Johnson and Tony Atlas. And we know how that was really going on backstage, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> how how do your tag champs essentially have two matches in their entire run as tag champs? <laughs> they didn't even <laughs> travel together. <laughs> anyway, that's another story for another episode. <laughs> yeah. We'll talk about the Soul Patrol, I'm sure, on another episode. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah a- a- absolutely. But uh, so he he had that IC run in 89 and then he,
1: he now, no, no, now back up a sec you said before that he won the intercontinental top for warrior he did have a feud with jake that would have been jake coming right off the the, the the steamboat
0: feud right 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 this would have been uh around the time obviously jake had already been turned face at, at this point but they, and, they and,
1: and wasn't that one that was yes now i think about it, it was that was one of the greatest angles ever where rude started wearing the airbrush and he came out with cheryl's face essentially airbrushed on his penis
0: on his crotch
1: yeah Yeah. and that's what set jake off so i was like that was just that was risque for the time but brilliant booking in my opinion Mm -hmm. and this would have been the time of course with the vince run starting with jake because he wasn't doing this you know they had paul jones even though he did cut promos in crockett and he did cut promos for, for fritz and world class this is when the whole take, you know, the homage that we made at the beginning of the episode. That's when all that started, right?
0: Right, right. They, look, they cut the music. What I'd like to have right now, mm-hmm. and yeah. right, right. And
1: they played that that great uh, theme song from your favorite 1976 porn movie.
2: What's yeah, what interest yeah. music?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think some of that was nicked by uh, Val Venus years later, but you know, <laughs> it kind of makes sense, doesn't it?
2: <laughs> right. Right,
1: it did have a smooth, smooth operator vibe. To go back to that reference from (laughs) earlier,
0: (laughs) yeah. But he had that uh, icy run in '89. I want to say it was um, WrestleMania five to SummerSlam '89, if I recall correctly. And then Mm -hmm. uh, the following year in '90, uh, they had Warrior beat Hogan for the title. Only Hogan had already beaten everybody, so they really didn't have a top contender. So they kind of went back to the Rick Rude feud. But that mm-hmm. means Rick Rude was legitimately headlining w w e shows as a world title contender
1: right and, and I think that that's often speculated about by the dirt sheets and the hardcore fans that warrior had a had a had a very unsuccessful run as the champion, and I think what you alluded to is just part of it Hogan had buried had, no, he hadn't buried everybody he'd done his job he had gotten over on everybody and there wasn't anybody left and there were no established stars uh or at least stars in the perception of the fans left for Warrior to feud with right and so right. i think they went back to rude warrior was not the easiest guy to work with i don't want to speak ill of the dead but he wasn't you know he was very limited in what he could do in ring and they knew rick could get something out of him but the problem was the same issue he had you know 5 years prior in dallas wasn't perceived as a world class, I think in a lot of fans eyes, you know, here's the guy who's your long running intercontinental champion. And all of a sudden I'm supposed to believe he's a world title contender. And I think that you combine that with, like we said, the limitations of, 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 of warrior, uh, the cyclical nature of wrestling. And it was beginning the downturn of the early nineties. It just, it didn't work out. I think the way anybody involved
0: would have wanted to, uh, am I wrong in seeing it that way? No, no, not not at all. And the best way I can summarize Hogan, and obviously we could dedicate multiple episodes to the career of Hulk Hogan, but
1: <laughs> eighteen episodes. Yeah.
0: Uh, we could literally Hogan, take
1: Hogan's Hulkamania year by year and do an episode each year. I, I, I kid right, you
0: not. Right, right, but but Hogan was an excellent Dragon Slayer. The problem is yes. he slayed all the dragons. You know, I think I think that's the best way I can put it.
1: And and unlike his father, who did the same kind of push for Bruno, you know, 10, 20 years earlier, Vince was kind of the victim of his own designs at that point. By becoming a national player and, and saturating his TV everywhere, there weren't many guys left for him to pull in and automatically be perceived as a monster in the eyes of the fan. It's like his father had been able to do for Bruno. When right. it was territorial, that wasn't a problem. Everybody else was – had already been slayed by Hogan or were really, really tied into hardcore you know, hardcore uh, contracts for, at that point, Turner, you because know, he had bought Crockett. Uh, the only other options were get something from Japan, and then you run into the, the language barrier. Um, the only guy I think at that point that they could have brought in and feuded with Warrior that would have probably gotten over uh, would have been either Sting or Luger, and both of them were heavily ensconced in Turner. They weren't going nowhere.
0: You know, right, right. And Sting, you would have that that history to build the, backstory. Of, you know, the, the backstory. You know, the backstory. Blade exactly. Runners. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly.
1: But it wasn't long after that that I, Rick left Vince.
0: Was it like ninety one? He left, I believe. Yeah, I want to say it was fall of ninety one. I believe he was feuding with the the Big Boss Man. The whole uh, insulting Big Boss Man's mother storyline, which I never truly understood. But I believe it was Halloween Havoc ninety one. He Debuted as the uh, the Halloween Phantom, and I think he beat Tom Zank in in like in like a minute yeah. or two, and yeah, because that that was the same show that had the uh, uh, Chamber of Horrors thing with Abby getting uh, electrocuted, right?
1: Right, yeah, that was the one, one of the few times Dusty Rhodes has publicly kind of laughed and admitted one of his ideas didn't really work. It was kind of bad, yeah. and and God love Abby for for selling it like crazy, going into the epileptic seizures. But it had, the cat was already out of the bag when earlier in the match, the 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 switch, and I'm doing air quotes as I say that, <laughs> on the side of the cage, it was supposed to start the leg. The toggle had actually fallen down, and bless Mick Foley's heart. He had climbed up and tried to k- kayfabe and, and s- discreetly put it back in the off position. But of course, cause it's WCW, their cameraman's watching him do it. So everybody's seeing it. <laughs> <laughs> and we wonder why WCW went under, right? <laughs> but, but, but anyway, yeah, it was
2: yeah, back yeah, to the,
1: um, back to the rude thing. I remember that being an announced match. Tom Zink was going to wrestle the WCW Phantom and they actually played, you know, the old Takata and Fugue, uh, Bach you know a piece for his interest music and this guy comes out with a with with you know the phantom of the opera mask and the hat and the cape we a very full visible body mustache through the mask <laughs> through through the mask right and and, and it was a quick it was, it was a squash match and when he hit when he hit the the, the swinging neck or the, the hangman's neck breaker which was the rude awakening you know and had had he had switched to that when he got the w w f from the d d t he was doing in the Crockets. i mean immediately they 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 even said you know um Jim Ross, and of course, it's Jim Ross, greatest announcer of all time, or he, him or Gordon Soly, depending on the day of the week. Saying that looks like a pretty <laughs> familiar move to me, Tony Schiavone. You know, <laughs> it's her. so it's they, they. I mean, the surprise was over really quick, and then they immediately interviewed him on the ramp. That was back in the days when WCW had the rampway that was level with with the side of the ring. You remember those days?
0: Oh yeah, yeah. I, I, and, I actually uh, really liked that uh, look
1: hmm. And this was right before the formation of the Dangerous Alliance, which we'll talk about here in a sec, because that's obviously the next move in his career. They were having Paul Heyman do the, the you know, he was the interview guy. He was the Gene, the Gene, uh, 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 the Mean Gene. So yeah. he, he interviews him and he immediately pulls the mask off. And, you know, Paul Heyman doing the, the, the psycho yuppie gimmick he was doing. Oh my God, it's Ravishing Recruit, you know? <laughs> And then Rick cut one of his probos and ended it with a kissing the camera lens, if I remember right. It was vintage, vintage Rick Rude. You know? Right, right. The, 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 the hair has been cut, doesn't have the mullet anymore, but this is the Rick Rude that we as wrestling fans know. He's been doing it for four or five years on Vince's television. I think at this point, the character was completely fully formed, you know, um, and the Rick Rude that most people will remember was present. Boom. And that's a game changer. Because we like we just talked about, here is a guy who just feuded with the world champion a year earlier in WWF, was having a, a, an upper mid card feud with Big Boss Man, and then he shows up on the on, on, on the opposition and is given this huge television debut push right out of the shoot. So I think that was definitely a sign of things to come and how they were going to use him. You know,
0: yeah, and and not long after that, I mean, he beat Sting for the U.S. title, which I think is still. I don't know. If, I don't know who who booked it if it was Dusty or if it was Bill Watts or. But it could have been Oli that, at that time. Uh, it would have been Oly? Okay. Uh um, Could have been Oly.
1: I don't I can't I can't remember the exact date. They, yeah, I remember they had a revolving door of Bookers there.
0: Right, while. right. Uh but I, I think you know the the uh match that I'm thinking of where uh, it was like Sting, Sting was hurt. taken away in an ambulance and he would have lost the title by forfeit and he he comes staggering in limping and just sells the entire time like he's dead. You know, yeah, they'd even mean,
1: cut off like half of his tights and shown like his knee all wrapped up me- right. with medical tape. I remember that, right. yeah. And that was like a clash of the champions, wasn't it? I, I think it was a clash, yeah. And this is a real transitional time for WCW. Flair's gone. Flair has gone to the WWF. Uh, Tully and Arn aren't back yet. They're still in
0: the WWF. Right. Um, uh, L- and, Luger, and, I think, was in transition. Uh, yeah, I, Luger.
1: I should... Luger turned heel because of all this. Right. He was the one revealed to be giving the gift boxes to um, Sting. Sting was your top baby face. They had just brought Vader in from Japan and were establishing him as a monster. Doom was breaking up, and you know Ron Simmons was, was starting to get his singles babyface push. They had some old guys left over because George Scott had come back in for a little while and brought in guys like the Iron Sheik and Junkyard Dog. Um, like we said, the, the Dangerous Alliance was formed. Essentially, to fill, in my opinion, as a fan, was was created to fill the void for the lack of the Four Horsemen. They needed another mm-hmm. heel stable. Agreed. And after after the Four Horsemen, I think Dangerous Alliance is the greatest heel stable of all time, and that includes the NWO. The, yep. Just think of the five guys: Ravishing Rick Rude, Beautiful Bobby Eaton, The Cruncher Larry Zbysko, Arn was back at that point, so Double A Arn Anderson, and uh, and um, who's the fifth guy? I'm, I'm missing. The, and Stunning Steve Austin. Steve Austin, yeah. With Paul Heyman managing them and Medusa in, in 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 the mix too. Wow, what a talented talented group. Yeah, and of course this is pre Stone Cold Steve Austin. This is the the waning days of 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 um, of, of Larry Zbysko's career. Bobby Eaton right. has been long established as one of the one of the greatest, not the greatest in ring worker, uh, American worker at that time. Um, Rick Rude was was the was was obviously the crown jewel of this group, the established main event guy, uh, you know, and and it, it just it, and Arn when he came back, of course, Tully, that's another episode of another time. Tully's failed drug test and how all that went down. But yeah, I mean, look it up. We'll do an episode on it at some point. So Arn was floundering with, with, with Robert Parker and the, and you know, in the stud stable before this, Arn Anderson does not fit with Jimmy golden as bunkhouse, buck and Terry funk in the, in the, I'm just saying, I love all those guys, but what's, what's different than the red, all the others. So it, he, he made more sense in the, in the, in the, in the dangerous Alliance. And, hmm. um, that those Dangerous Alliance matches led to the feud with Sting over the U.S. title. He had uh, the, the long-running feud after that with, with Ricky Steamboat. I think some of the best matches Rude had in his whole career, in my opinion.
0: Don't you? It's such a fitting feud, Ricky Steamboat and Rick mm-hmm. Rude. Uh, there's one that never happened, but I remember Bret Hart blogging about Rick Rude when when Rude passed, and uh, I want to say it was mid '99. Uh, saying that we only work together in, in a single tag match, you know, like like they'd only right. been in the ring together. And when you think about it, uh, um, what, what what better feud could you think of for Bret Hart than Rick Rude? You know,
1: a heel Rick Rude and a babyface Bret Hart. You're talking absolutely. like circa ninety four, ninety five. Yeah, right Prince before the Attitude yeah. <laughs> you know? Oh yeah, that's a great match. Uh, you know, it's like we discussed earlier. Rick didn't take a lot of bumps, but the ones he took, they meant something. Uh, he was a great psychologist in the ring. Um, he, and, and it's two different styles. Sting is, uh, you know, he's a punch and kick guy with some power moves. I mean, he was doing a, a little bit of high flying cause he was still younger, but Sting has always been a lesser in ring guy than some other main event guys. I think Sting would tell you that, you know, um, and so Rick definitely had to carry those matches on, on you know, on on the worker, you know, put the work boots on. But then you get in the ring with Steamboat, and you're in with arguably one of the greatest pure athletes ever to lace up boots. So it's once again, just like I was talking about his tag team in the late '80s, having to go from the Rock and Rolls to the Road Warriors, he's got the same thing going here, you know. And yes, wrestling was down as a whole at the time, but I, 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 I dare t- I dare say that the the the, the whole Sting squadron versus dangerous alliance was one of the best things of that era of wrestling in any company. And that's including the prototype, uh, feud in new Japan that, you know, that, that Bischoff stole to create the NWO. That's including the, uh, you know, the, the awesome beginnings of the Masawa, uh, Kawada feud of an all Japan, which are, you know, legendary. This was right up there with them because there's contemporaries to them, in my opinion. And Rude is a major part of that because he's the crown jewel of this stable. Right. And right. as much as much as you know, my nostalgia wants me to tell you the first war games was the best, the one where JJ Dilling, you know, broke his shoulder. The one in ninety one, which was the one where Sid Vicious hurt Prime Pillman, and then the next one in ninety two, which was Sting Squadron against the Dangerous Alliance, those might be the two best war games ever in any setting. I I strongly encourage since we're talking about Rick Rude, all of our listeners go on the network and look up uh, look up War Games '92.
0: I believe it was under the Fall Brawl name. Yeah, it was Fall
1: Brawl that year. It was Fall Brawl that year. Uh, Tony Schiavone and Jim Ross call the action. Uh, Sting Squadron was Sting, Nikita Koloff, uh, Ricky Steamboat, the Natural Dustin Rhodes, and um, Barry Windham versus the five guys I mentioned before. Incredible match, booked great. If you're squeamish, be forewarned. There's a lot of blood in this. This is the Bill Era Watts of our Bill Watts era of 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 WCW. And I, the best way I can describe that match is a comment that is classic Jim Ross and that he makes towards the end of the match. You are seeing WCW at its violent, most athletic best. I think that pretty much sums up that match pretty well, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think I think uh, Miltzer gave it five stars too. It,
1: it is one of the first, I believe, the year before the, in 91 was the first time Meltzer had given a five star rating to a WCW match. He had given them to Crockett matches, but never to one since Turner bought it out. And this was the second one. I mean, he had given three five star matches to, to the Funk or the Flair, you know, the, 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 the Flair, Flair Steamboat boat stuff. Yeah. And, the, and, and he gave the one to the Funk Flair, but those were all still under the NWA banner. This was the, only the second under the WCW banner. And there is a spot in that match, and I can't remember if it was Rick Rude or Arn Anderson, where they get their head caught between the two rings. And Barry Windham is like cranking it like he's trying to twist their head off. It's just amazing to, to, to witness. It's incredible. I mean, everybody, I think everybody but like one or two guys bled. Medusa takes off her high heels and climbs up to the top of the cage to get chased down by Sting. It's it's, it's it's a sight. If you are a true wrestling fan, you need to go back and watch that match if you haven't seen it. And if you've seen it, it's worth watching it again. I can't sing the praises of that match enough.
0: Absolutely. And uh, I think it was the following year. I want to say it was. It, it was in Japan, but it it was the mm-hmm. career ending injury that he had in, in a match with Sting, where uh-huh. I think he took. I think Sting did a high cross body to the outside and again it was on mm-hmm. it was on that elevated uh ring apron like we were talking about and i uh, i i i've seen the injury i don't know if you know the injury i'm talking about but but basically yeah he like
1: blew a di- he like blew a disc out didn't he
0: yeah it, it 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 was like the the small of his of his back landed on the elevated corner of the ring uh i i don't think i don't think it was a tokyo dome but but it was definitely a wcw um, uh, i want to say it was new japan new japan, japan. Yeah, yeah. New well, Japan
1: was they had a working deal, with, like a co-promotion.
0: Yeah, but uh, I mean, and looking back on it now, it's 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 just like you know I, I just wince in pain just watching it, just just seeing the bump that he took.
1: And and of course we discussed earlier, his best friend was Kurt. Kurt was the first of the wrestlers to get the big Lloyd's of London insurance policy, and he told Rick. Rick got one too, and so when he got injured, he could have probably had surgery, rehab, and come back right away, but he opted to just stay at home and collect the money can you blame him (laughs) not at all um yeah and and well kurt did it too. remember (laughs) kurt was out for a while uh with the neck injury that's why he was the advisor to flair instead of wrestling because he was collecting his Lloyd's of london um and uh i think prior to that though didn't flair had come back at that point didn't they have a little mini feud right before he hurt his back
0: yeah yeah they had a feud over the big gold belt which by this time, had been they'd withdrawn from the NWA, uh, which I think we talked about in a previous episode. But um, mm-hmm. they they started calling it the WCW International World Championship instead of the the NWA title. But it, but it was the big gold belt. And I think that was for for hardcore fans. Flair versus Rude was a dream match, wasn't it? Absolutely. And 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 Flair was basically the the babyface by default, for lack of a better term. Yeah, he was a
1: de facto baby. And and I know both of them have said. Publicly. Uh Flair obviously has said it even more because, you know, unfortunately Rick's no longer Rude's no longer with us. They didn't like working each other. And I don't think it was because of the paranoia that I discussed earlier. I think it had to do with both these guys were such good heels and such good g- ring generals that can become a clash of egos in the ring. I can speak to that as a wrestler, as a worker. Yeah, and I think that was that was probably what was at, at play. Which I know Flair's openly said he did not like the one match that they had on pay per view. I think the one where Rick where Rude won the belt. I, I have to disagree with Champ. I thought it was an incredible match. Um, I thought they worked. Then again, Flair always hated his matches with Piper too for the same reason. And I thought Flair and Piper worked great together. Yeah, but both guys you know, are I such natural as, heels. Right, I can tell you as a worker, we tend to be our own worst critics. You know, as egotistical as we are. And if you know anything about Ric Flair's career, if you know anything about Rick Rude's career, I think the idea of a perfectionist might be a little too strong, but not far off for both those guys and how they went about their business in between the ropes. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, after the back injury. Did he ever return back to the ring as an, a competitor? I don't remember that.
0: do you No, no, I don't think he ever had any full-on matches. He would interfere in matches and he had to run right. in uh, ECW if I recall correctly yes. opposite he sure uh, did I want to say Shane Douglas uh, but again he he was more foil he wasn't an actual in ring competitor now I believe just one man's opinion had he not passed, he would have had another in-ring run, but like you said, he, he was uh, collecting the insurance money and, okay, uh, take a pay cut and take bumps or you know get paid to sit at home and not take bumps.
1: Or just stand on television and make cash there while I'm still collecting because that's what he did. Right. For fans that are newer that don't know his in-ring career, that only came along like Attitude Era, they're going to remember Rick Rude for his ECW run and for his run as a – Enforcer, so to speak, for the NWO, and then as the same position for Degeneration X, which is, I think, one of the keynote um, moments in the entire Attitude Era, which was the night that Rick Rude, because WWF at the time was, you know, doing pre-recorded tapes, they would do, they would record two Raws back to back. They would do the f- live one, and then they record another one for the next week. Well, Nitro was live every week. So he was able to be on Raw and Nitro on the same night. Right, um, that was pretty amazing. I'm sure you remember that that particular moment, don't you?
0: Right, and uh, Bischoff made it a point to have Rick shave to the classic, you know, porn stash we talked about. So on one channel, he's clean shaven except for the mustache, and then uh, but on mm. Raw, he had a full beard. So it's just like, yeah, you put two and two together, and it's like, okay, one <laughs> of these is taped. Right. Exactly. And of course that was a a known tactic of
1: Bischoff, uh, was to, you know, give away results and all that kind of stuff. Um, it was a unique time for wrestling. And, um, you like to bring up uh, the point that, um, Brian and Vinny make on their podcast when they review some of the old nitros where on WWF, they're having Ken Shamrock instead of being just Ken Shamrock, try to throw a hissy fit. And then you flip over to to Nitro and here's Rick Rude, because they were having problems with the house lights, walking out and just an improv interview gets right in, in Bischoff and, and I think it was Abisco's face and saying, The next some of them fix these lights, I'm gonna kill some I'm gonna murder somebody. And then pointing <laughs> out that was more terrifying than Shamrock <laughs> tossing a bunch of jobbers around on the other channel. <laughs> right, right. Shamrock I mean, came
0: across like he was playing a character, whereas Rick Rude came across as do not piss this guy off. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> he definitely had that aura, you know? Um,
1: I think Rick rude, for those that aren't familiar with his in ring run, because I'm sure a lot of our listeners only know the era we're talking about now. He was a great technical wrestler, but don't go into, if you go back and look at his stuff, don't think Ricky steamboat. I don't think he had the same kind of athleticism. Don't think Rick Flair even though he they were both great heels they were different types of heels even though there were a lot of similarities to the playboy and the ladies and all that stuff rick rude had a much more rugged style i would say than either one of them um but it was not brawling he rick barely rarely threw punches he was more of a forearm guy um he was just extremely aggressive and um he used basic holds but Everything he did kind of, you know, made sense within the context of what he was trying to do and the story he was trying to tell. Uh, like I said, he he didn't take a lot of bumps like Flair. Uh, but what bumps he did, he'd always take that one or two at the end of the match that meant something. And then then he had the promos. Uh, once again, you cannot compare Rick Rude to a Piper or a Flair or a Dusty. He wasn't that gregarious or over the top. He was more of the "I will murder you" type. <laughs> it was very succinct. Uh, it was very um, aggressive when he was talking about what he was going to do to his opponent, and very audacious when he would talk about his conquests uh, of the ladies and what he what his body looked like. Uh, did, did I summarize that well enough? You think?
2: Yeah,
0: yeah, I, I, I think so. Um, and as we're winding down here, it, it, like like it, I, I believe ninety three was his final match, uh, but he did pass away on April twentieth of nineteen ninety nine which would have put it right at the heart of the, the Monday night wars. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, and he was I,
1: still actively on, on, on WCW television when he passed, wasn't
0: it? Y- yes. Yes. He, he was part of the NWO at the time. And right. You know, it, there, there's a whole other thing that we could get into about all the, the, uh, late nineties, uh, deaths in wrestling, but uh, he had that run in ECW. And then I believe he came back, uh, for that, that infamous, uh, Raw and Nitro on the same night, and right. I think that's that's really where where he'd ended his, he ended his career as far as uh, uh, WCW goes. But mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. what what are your memories uh, as we wind up here? Uh, when did, when did you hear of his passing? I, I read about it online. It was back when I was uh... you know, first getting into uh, reading about wrestling online. before I knew the names uh, Dave Meltzer I, I, and I, Wade I, Keller if, and such.
1: If I remember. If I remember right, I think I might have got the dirt sheet that week, you know, Uh, and I can't remember if it was Torch or if it was the Observer, but it came. I was still getting hard copies in the mail of both at the time. Um, um, I think that's where I heard about it, and it would have been like midweek, like a Wednesday or Thursday. But then it was obviously a fairly – a fairly – talked about topic i think it was like a wednesday because i mean the next night i was working it was a thursday night and i was booked um so for the next that whole thursday through monday run because that was essentially what my work schedule was as a wrestler at that point in my career i was booked pretty much every thursday friday saturday sunday monday and tuesday wednesday were essentially my days off um it was pretty well talked about in the locker rooms that weekend you know he, he obviously for guys of my era had had an effect on us he had been one of those guys we grew up you know wanting making us want to be a wrestler to begin with um he was that level of a star uh and just a tragedy because of the things that we talked about uh you you alluded to the fact that there were a lot of deaths around that era so it was it was becoming almost morbid sometimes when i would go out to wrestle because it was oh who died this week you know um mm-hmm. And I can't remember if it was right before or right after like Bobby Duncombe Jr. passed and Louis Piccoli had had passed, I think, right before him. So it was he was just the numbers were piling up. Owen Owen had died uh, before, I think recently before him. It was getting kind of crazy. Yeah, Brian. It was it was getting kind of crazy there. And um it was it was sad. Uh but like I, I talked about earlier, um only met the mayor one time. He was very cordial and professional with me, and it was just in passing. But there were a lot of his peers that I'm friends with that said they, they liked Rick, but he was a bit paranoid. Uh, he was a legit badass. He was one of those guys, much in the vein of a Ming or a, a Harley Race or a Dick Slater you didn't cross. <laughs> uh, he wasn't to the level of those guys, but I think he was the level right below him. Him and Hawk and a few other guys were guys you you didn't mess with. Scott Norton. <laughs> you know, These are guys that you didn't want to piss them off. And, and fortunately... Uh there's not a lot of stories I've heard of him getting in fist fights. I mean, it's not the it's not the same as like Dick Slater giving giving Sting a swirly. Everybody's heard that story. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> there was never any of that, but there are some. And I don't want to speak ill of the man cuz he's been dead for years and when he was inducted to the Hall of Fame, we saw his wife and children. He obviously was a good father and husband. The they, the way they presented themselves and they talked about him, it was real. You could see that. So I think that speaks a large measure to the man, you know. Uh, but by the same token, there are stories of him going as far as uh, brand—I don't know, brandishing a gun, but but making sure that Eric Bischoff knew he had a gun in his car over a disagreement about the U.S. title. So, mm-hmm. um, but you know, he's not the first wrestler. I mean, uh, Bruiser Brody, Stan Hansen—I I could go on and on with other. You know, it's it's he to me, and I say this as a wrestler and a member of the Brotherhood, Rick Rude was one of the last guys to come up in the era where real men were real men in the business and they were all a bit of a rebel. And they did things on their own terms, uh, the way they wanted to. Toughness was a premium and uh, you didn't back down from a fight. And there's just not many of those guys. Our, Our society has changed. I dare say probably the only guys left in the locker room that Vince has now like that uh, the Dudleys, uh, Chris Jericho,
2: Kane, Taker. and
1: Undertaker, and Taker. That's it. And Kane and Taker are so big that they're not going to get in a fist fight, especially Kane now that he's running for public office. You know, <laughs> uh, but uh, that's right. If you live in the Knox County area, remember vote for Glenn Jacobs. That's right, Kane. I'm giving you some free prob. I love you, brother. Um, uh, it's um, yeah. It, 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 he was from that mold, you know that Dusty Rhodes rick flair arn anderson uh, the, uh harley the, the briscoes you i think you get the idea. black jack mulligan that that mold where
2: right you right know, you um, didn't the, take
1: no you didn't excuse my language here you didn't take no shit from nobody you know that was that was rick rude
0: yeah and because that he broke in in the dying days of the territories where you yeah. could say you know take the spot and shove it and and
1: yeah, go somewhere yeah, else exactly Right. And I mean, some guys like Dick Murdoch, who was also a tough guy, he would just walk away, you know, other guys like 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 Bru- Bruiser Brody, you know, he was the exact opposite. He'd start a fight. And then there was somebody in the middle like Stan Hansen, who would just run over your title belt and mail it back to you. <laughs> but, <laughs> but You get the idea of the mentality we're talking about. You know, it was it was that was the sport that that intrigued me as a young man that I wanted to be a part of that everything i did athletically leading up to my wrestling career led up to me being that kind of guy i always envisioned myself and i did not get in a lot of fights in locker room i didn't get in a lot of fun a lot i got some with locals at the bar after the show but that was the era i was brought up in. the very very end of it and so there's a respect i'll always have for rick Rude and others of his ilk because i think the wrestling business is missing those guys I think some of the the complaints you hear from current fans is what they don't know and they don't understand is those kind of guys aren't the wrestlers that you guys are seeing now. I I think there's some that could be. I think Roman Reigns could easily be that guy. I think John Cena could easily be that guy, but both of them are just too nice to do it, you know. Um, uh, Brock Lesnar has some of that in him. I mean, he's 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 a bit of a dinosaur, and I think that's you know, Kurt Angle has a little bit of that in him, but these guys are you know. That's not Seth Rollins. That's not Kevin Owens. That's God knows. That's not AJ Styles, you know? (laughs) Right. And, uh, not that I'm nothing against any of those guys. It's just when Rick started, when Rick died, I think a piece of what will make wrestling great and attracted me to it died with him. It just, it, it just those type of guys. And we've lost so many more of those in recent years with, you know, Piper and dusty and guys like that. It's, um, it's something when you pull back the curtain that, like I said, a lot of the fans don't understand that is what made wrestling wrestling when I became a fan. And Rick Rude was a a shining beacon and example of that. Yes, he was paranoid. Yes, he's a little crazy. Yes, he can be hard to work with sometimes. Uh, you know, but he was professional in the ring. He was professional out of the ring. He made money and took care of his family. And he was a man's man. You know, his word was his bond, and didn't don't don't cross him and don't lie to him because you're gonna pay the consequence. Um. Really wish there were more of those guys like that in the business now.
0: Yeah, I I couldn't have put it any better. Uh, But that's going to wrap up our talk here about the life and career of Ravishing Rick Rude. This has been Classic Wrestling Memories. You can find us on ClassicWrestlingMemories.com, Apple Podcasts, and uh, uh, wherever you get your podcasts of choice, you can find us there. Just do a search for Classic Wrestling Memories. Uh, The Twitter is twbp show that's for the wrestling brethren podcast show and our sister podcast the wrestling brethren can be found at twbpodcast.com and of course i can be also be reached on our uh, non-wrestling twitter at geekvilleradio.com and train if people want to get a hold of you how can they do so i am on twitter at crazy train underscore jb All right, once again, thank you folks for listening to this episode of Classic Wrestling Memories. We'll be back soon before you know it, uh, talking, well, as the name implies, Classic Wrestling Memories. Classic Wrestling Memories is part of the A1-Wrestling.com podcast family and can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and at ClassicWrestlingMemories.com and at A1-Wrestling.com. The views expressed by the hosts and guests are purely their own and do not reflect the views of A1-Wrestling.com, any of its affiliates, or sponsors. Some media used in ClassicWrestlingMemories.com is the copyright of its respective owners, all rights reserved.